I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles then to Psalm chapter 1. And I think we're going to do Psalm 1 this week. We'll do Psalm 2 next week. I think these psalms tie together. And so we'll, we'll cover these psalms this morning. Psalm 1, a very familiar, a familiar psalm. Many of us have memorized this psalm. And we will take a, a look at it this morning. The psalmist writes, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his light is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me as I pray before we tackle our text this morning. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've put it in human language, that you have put it in a way that we can understand, that you have given us the Holy Spirit and able to illuminate the truths for us, and so we are not left alone. And so this morning, again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of this text, that your Holy Spirit would apply it as he sees fit, and that you would grant us a willingness to obey. You would grant us repentance where we need repentance, encourage us where we need encouragement, and then build us up. And so I pray this morning that your church will be built here this morning as we are more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, Psalm 1 is the first psalm in Psalms. Well, that makes sense. You're saying, Pastor, wow, you're, you're profound this morning. But as always, when we start a book, we start with something that the author wants us to understand. And God has placed it here, and it has been arranged in a certain way. And we would understand there's a reason that it's here. Because in many ways, it encapsulates the whole idea of the Psalms. There are those who are righteous, and there are those who are wicked. It divides humanity into two groups, not three groups, not 10 groups, not 15 groups, not infinite groups, but two groups. You're either righteous or you're wicked. There's no, there's no categories in between. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. And so this psalm, therefore, goes through this section and it talks exactly about that. And it measures and it says in the first three verses, this is what the righteous person looks like. This is what he is. And in the last section, he says, this is the evil. This is their end. This is what, is what they're about. This is who they are. And it leaves you at the end of the day asking the question, am I righteous or am I wicked? Which group do I fall in? Now you're going to say, Pastor, we're all at church. But going to church does not guarantee that you're in one of these groups. It doesn't say just because you go to church that somehow you are righteous. And so the psalmist lays this out at the very, very beginning. And he wants us to recognize the necessity of, of deciding and understanding which group we are in. In fact, I think this psalm starts here with how blessed is the man. And he then lays out who the blessed man is, who the wicked man is. And then he goes into, into Psalm 2, which ends with how blessed are those who take what? Refuge in him. In other words, chapter two, uh, Psalm 2 will ultimately give us a call for repentance so that we, are, we recognize and are one of those who are righteous. And so right at the very beginning, we ask... Which group are you in? Which group are you in? Are you righteous or are you one of the wicked? Are you an unbeliever? 
And by the time we're done this morning, you're going to be able to measure yourself. You're going to be able to look and see and say, am I one of the righteous ones? Or if I'm, or am I one of the wicked? And so the, by the end of the time, we're going to call on you to say, to make a decision on that. We're going to make you to want you to look at yourself and say, who am I? And at the end, we will ask if you are not one of the righteous and you don't see yourself, that you cry out that God would grant you repentance that you might know him. And so this morning as we begin this psalm, we're going to look simply, we'll divide this psalm in half. It's got two paragraphs in the, in the Hebrew. We may as well leave it in two. We're going to look at the godly, and then we're going to look at the wicked. And we're simply going to see how they are described. Now, when we, look at, when we look at the righteous one here, when we look at them, we're going to see, first of all, that they are separated from the world, that they are full of the word of God, they, they, are, they are in the word of God, and they are, they are divinely empowered by God. And so as we look at these things, we're going to see who they are. So we, we could, we could, another way we could say we're looking at the path of the believer, we're looking at the pleasure of the believer, and then we will see at the position or, or, or the transformation of the believer. So this morning, first of all, we begin this, and he says, how blessed is the man. Now, the word blessed here is, is, a, is a word that means, is, it says how blessed, and the idea here is not just that he's blessed, but that he is full of blessings and he has been blessed in a great way. In other words, this isn't, he's not just blessed, it's like how blessed, very blessed. This man is extremely well off. He's doing extremely well. It's a, it's a plural word here, the blessings. And the, and the word blessed here, it has the idea of being very happy. Uh, it has the idea of, of satisfaction and the idea of satisfaction and contentment in the Lord. In other words, this, this, is not, this is not surface happiness that comes from circumstances, from life going well, from getting what you want, but is rather a contentment that is based upon a joy in the Lord. It is based upon having a relationship with him and having him as your treasure. He is, he is the one that satisfies your soul. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say what? Rejoice. And he's saying rejoice what? In the Lord. That is where this man is blessed. This is where he's satisfied because he has placed himself on the Lord. He is, has his soul is satisfied. There's a peace and satisfaction in his heart. And so he be, really begins at this thing, and you can almost hear, we, we read in Matthew, the, the Beatitudes, blessed is the man, right? Here he's saying, blessed is the man. And now he's about to tell you the conditions by which this man is blessed. In other words, it's a statement, blessed is this man, but it's also the beatitude in the fact that he's saying, okay, now I'm going to tell you why he's blessed, how he's blessed, and we'll look at that as we go through this text. He says, how blessed is the man who, in other words, here's, here's the conditions on, by which this man is blessed. This is how he is blessed. This is how we, we know he's satisfied in the Lord who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, he's saying there, this man is blessed and he is blessed by the Lord and satisfied in the Lord because of the associations that he makes. In other words, there's something that this man separates himself from. There's a path that he takes and it's not a path that he goes down with the world. He separates himself from that. Now, what he's not saying, just so you know, he's not saying that you need to get out of the world, right? He's not saying, okay, don't associate with anyone who's an unbeliever. Get in your, get in your little commune. 
build the walls and we'll all stay in, right? We know the Great Commission already tells you, go into the world and preach the gospel. So we're, we're already, we already know that even though we come together, we come together so that we can scatter it in order to give the gospel. So we don't get into, the, into our little group and stay there. As one commentator said, this is not isolation, but insulation. In other words, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be the boat in the water, but there shouldn't be water in the boat, right? So we're, we're out there. And so we're, it's, not, it's not a call for, for complete isolation, but it is, it is a call for us to be separated from the world and, and, its, and its influence upon us. First of all, he said there's three things that he must avoid. And what we're going to notice here is a progression. He says, first of all, how, do, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. And so there is, a, there is an association that's getting closer and closer and closer. And with each one of those associations, there's a greater sin that takes place. And we're going to see that as we walk through. So don't be confused because you're going to say, well, it seems like wicked is worse than sinner and, and scoffer seems like less than, than, than a sinner or the wicked. But I think as we walk through, we're going to see that actually there's a greater sin taking place and there's that spiral of sin. We always talk about sin. Sin leads to a downward spiral. And you sin, you compromise in one area, you compromise in another and another and another. And you wonder sometimes, how do people start here and end up over there? Because it's just like eating an elephant, right? One bite at a time. It's one sin at a time, one compromise at a time, and it leads to that spiral down further into sin. And we see that idea in Romans chapter 1, right? They rejected the truth of God, and they spiral down till God gives them over to a depraved mind, right? And ultimately, they exchange the truth for a lie. They exchange... Uh, the lust for one another in the, to the wrong sex, and then ultimately they approve what? What is evil. And so there's that downward spiral that goes. So he says there's the first thing to avoid. He says, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The, the idea of to walk is to go alongside, uh, follow a course of action, or to live or follow a way of life. And so the idea here is this person who is righteous has made a definitive choice not to walk in the paths or the way of life or, or the counsel of the wicked. And again, counsel here means purpose, plan, or, or resolution of will and really has the idea of a viewpoint or way of thinking. And he says the righteous man has chosen deliberately not to go along with the way of the thinking of the world. He has not gone away with their viewpoint. He hasn't taken their mental attitude or their state of mind or their viewpoint. And again, the word wicked here has the idea of those who are fallen short. It's to be loose or unstable. It has the idea of, of being morally unstable and, and unhinged from God. And basically, these are people who, who, who run according to the desires of their flesh and their viewpoint. And he says, listen, you as a believer are called to separate yourself from the thinking of those people who are simply controlled by the desires of their flesh, who are, have no moral tying to God and whose morals are against him. And so he says, stay away from their thinking. Don't be don't be influenced, as it were, by their thinking. And so we must be careful what we listen to, what we read. That we don't start to sympathize with those who are espousing ideas and philosophies and views that are against God and his ways. And how easy it is for us to be, get caught up in the thinking of the world but we must refuse worldly wisdom. We must refuse to go along with their ideas and their thinking. 
And so we must be careful to guard our minds. We must be careful to guard what we put in, right? We could say this. This writer understands that garbage in is garbage out. And he says, don't put garbage in your mind. Don't, be, don't get sucked in to the ideas of the world. Whatever those ideas are, whether you're listening to a worldview that is against God, whether it's philosophies that tell you how men should function, whatever that is, if they tell you what you need and what you must do, we must not have our minds saturated with their worldview. And so we are to refuse that wisdom. We are refused to go along and have our thinking tainted by the world. And so he says, this is what the, um, the man of God must do. The righteous man does not have his thinking controlled and influenced by the values of the world. And then he says, not only is he not influenced he, and it doesn't let his thinking be influenced, he now doesn't allow his behavior to be influenced. It says, nor stand in the path of sinners. Refers to the, their lifestyle or their behavior. Stand means to stop, to be firm. Where formerly walking in the counselor, one becomes more confirmed in the way of the wicked, more involved in influence, it connotates movement towards a formation of habits and patterns. In other words, now we have gone from just listening to them, right? We're, and getting a sympathy and having those ideas in their heads. But we know this, everything that you think ultimately affects your behavior. It cannot help. It cannot help it. And what you think will influence how you behave. And he says, now what's coming, what's happened going from the casual listening, now you have begun to act like the world. Your actions have now started to be like those of the world because you're thinking like the world. And again, the, the word sinner here is, a, is, a, is the word for an archery term, meaning to fall short, to miss the mark. It is... It is to miss the will of God, the plan of God, to sin and transgress against his righteousness. And so here, sinners refers to those who deliberately have chosen a way of life, a path contrary to the plan of God revealed in the word of God. And he says, the righteous man makes a choice. I will not go along with this. I will not start to make my associations and my behavior go along with the way of those in the world. My lifestyle will be not directed by them. I will not follow along. In fact, we should say he should feel uncomfortable with those people. And so here is this person who now has gone from, we would say, listening to the counsel of God, uh, to the, of the wicked, to standing in the path. He's become comfortable there. He's going along and now he is behaving like them. And so what was once only thought has now become a pattern of sin in the, in the person's life. And so you can see that downward spiral that he's going. And he, because this person has not separated themselves from the world, they have not separated from their influence, now they are being sucked down. So he says they don't walk, they don't stand. And then he says, nor do they sit in the seat of the scoffers. Literally translated, in the seat of scorners, he hath not sat. Sit in the Hebrew means to dwell or remain, abide. It emphasizes a thoroughly settled state or condition, settled down, comfortable, content with the world, with its patterns entrenched in our lives. And so 
The word in the seat here has the idea of a seat, a, a place of sitting, but also an assembly where many are gathered together to sit and make deals and have some close associations. The point is, is when you sit in someone's seat, according to the idiom, you act like or become what they are. You are viewed as in confederacy with them. And he says, you have, you have, you have, you've actually associated with them. Now you belong to them. Now this is where you're comfortable. This is where you sit. And so he says, they're in the seat of the what? The scoffers. It means to mock, deride, ridicule, or scoff. It is, it is a habitual action. This is who you, when you come down this road, you start being influenced, then you start behaving, and then you actually habitually become a mocker, a derider, a scoffer of the things of God. It refers to one who's actively engaged in putting down the things of God in his word. In other words, by your behavior and by your life and by the things you say, you don't just become someone who participates in sin. You become someone who actually is actively against God. You no longer are just content to sin on your own. You are now someone who is actively against God and you scoff the things of God. And this is a far, a much farther down. It's one thing to be unconstrained by your flesh. It's one thing then to us to become habitually in sin. But here now you, you get to the point where you are actively hostile to God and the things of God. And he says, guess what? The righteous man avoids these things. He separates himself out of there. His path doesn't go there. He will refuse the things of the world. He will not allow them to influence them and to pull them into sin. And there's a warning here. There's... Because we think that sometimes it starts, it's how could, we'll never fall away. We'll, we'll never end up in deep sin. And yet it's so subtle. It just starts with a little bit of thinking, right? Next thing you know, it starts into behavior and then right away. We must be careful. And so he says, be careful. Don't be a scoffer. Don't be one of those who is hostile towards God. Don't be one of those who ultimately rejects the truth. And really, we could say for this whole section here, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. And so the psalmist simply says, don't love the world. Don't let it influence you. Don't allow sin into your life. Don't allow this spiral to take place. Separate yourself from the world. Separate from the world system. Separate from the things that are evil. Don't allow them to influence you. In fact, the church is called the what? The ecclesia the called out ones, and we are called to be separate from the world. And how tragic it is when the church looks like the world. How tragic it is. In fact, he says, the righteous man does not look like the world. He is separate from the world. And if we look like the world, then we are not acting like we are righteous. It should never be our goal to be like the world. We should be separate from the world. The world is our mission field. We go out there to do missions. We don't go out there to act like them. What does the church have to offer if we just are exactly like the world? So we see the path of the righteous man. He is separated from the world. This is how he is, how is he blessed? How is he content in the world? Because he's not taking his marching orders from the world. So then how does he separate himself from the world? How exactly is that going to take place? 
Because, Pastor, it's really nice to say to do something, but if you don't tell us how to do that, how on earth are we ever going to separate ourselves from the world? How do we actually stop being influenced the world? How do we make sure that we're not sucked in, that we don't start not even really understanding that our own thinking is wrong and then we end up going down this path? I don't want to be a scoffer. Well, good news. He answers that for us in the text, right? He's a good teacher. How do we do that? By being in the Word of God. By being in the Word of God. So he says, here's, here, here's the passion of the believer. Here's what he goes after. This is what he's saturated with. This is how he corrects his thinking. This is what his pleasure is. This is the pleasure of the rich man. I mean, of the righteous man. Wow. Of the righteous man. This is his pleasure. And he tells us in the next verse, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he meditates day and night. How do you quit being influenced by the world? How do you stop having those thoughts in your head? How do you stop from compromising into behavior then ultimately being a scoffer? Put good stuff in. Put good stuff in. The word of God. In other words, this is, this, is, this is how you can be blessed. This is how you can keep being put in there, right? He says, but, in contrast, in, but, in, but his delight. Instead of doing these things, he now does this thing, right? He doesn't do this, but he does this. He delights in the law of the Lord. There's a strong uh, contrast here between what he doesn't do and what he does do. He's got a totally different belief system, a totally different world of view, but his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord. But rather in the law of the Lord, his delight, literally. His word, that is what is the object of our delight. Delight's basic meaning is obvious. But this word here has the, is, is a word that is used for a man delighting in his wife. Genesis 34, 19. For a young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. In other words, he delighted in her. There was something that he saw that was attractive. He, there's something that he loved, something that he, that he adored. The idea here is to bend or incline towards a desire to pleasure, an inclination to, for satisfaction. And he says, just like a man looks upon a woman whom he loves and is delighted in, he says, the righteous man delights in the word of God. He loves the word of God. He finds it attractive. It is something that he is drawn towards. And it says he's, he's, he's drawn to the law of the Lord. And again, remember, he's speaking to the Old Testament. The word here is for Torah. In other words, he's drawn to the law. He's speaking to the Jews here. But the principle is still the same, Right? Paul told us in, in Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And primarily what's written when he speaks to Timothy is the Old Testament. But we know that the New Testament is included in that. No prophecy was ever made by act of human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so he says, this is to be what the, this is what the righteous man does. His delight, his pursuit is the word of God. It is truth, it is accurate, it's reliable, it's powerful. And so he, this is where he finds his pleasure. You know, when the psalmist says it's like honeycomb, it's sweet, it's good. And I will say this, the mark of a true believer who is one who delights in the word of God, who sees it as good, who desires it, who delights in it, 
It should be that if you don't have the Word of God and you haven't read the Word of God, you should be cranky because it's what you desire. It should be something that, that affects your life that if you can't get to it, just like a newborn babes desire the sincere word, milk of the Word, right? They cry. They don't get the Word of God. They cry. They get angry. They, they, they get hostile. That should be the believer because you just desire it. You want it so much. And so that is, to, that is the mark of a believer, the one who sees the word of God, sees it as something that is desirable, something that he is drawn to, because it, it contains the authoritative principles and instructions which guides our lives, and we just, we want to get to it because that's what brings us to God. And so this is what the righteous man does. He, spend, he takes the word of God and he desires it. It's his priority. Now, if you've ever seen a young man get enamored with a young lady, you're going to notice some change in patterns of behavior. And if he really delights in her, it's amazing how he can rearrange his schedule to be there. Right? All of a sudden, the guy's driving through the night to, to go see her. He'll stay up late. He'll go to work tired. He will do whatever is necessary, but he spends times with her because he delights in her. And that is exactly the same way with the Word of God. When we delight in it, we are going to do exactly what the psalmist says. And he says, and his law in his law, he meditates, what, day and night. He doesn't just say, well, yeah, like, oh, she's really sweet. No, he goes to make, he makes time for her, and he goes and he makes an effort to be there. So the believer doesn't just say, well, man, I love the word of God. He actually goes and spends time there. And it's just as important, the and here means that it's just important to be in the law as it is to delight in it. Delighting isn't enough. That's only half of the sandwich. You got to get to the rest. And so he says, he delights in his law and in his law he meditates what? Day and night. Great. There goes sleep. Well, it's, it's an idiom, right? What he's saying is there that you are constantly, consistently, regularly in the word of God. Right? The righteous man is consistently, constantly, and regularly in the, in the Word of God. In other words, the man of God is occupied with the Word of God. It's on his mind, it's in his heart at all times, every situation, every area of life. So he says he's in the law, he's in there day and night, all the time, continually. He meditates on it. That's habitual action. Literally, uh, it means to moan, growl, utter, speak, muse, think, plan. And he says, the believer, the righteous man, is someone who so delights in the word of God that he's in it and meditating and chewing on it all the time. As one, one man said, it's like a cow chewing its cud. He's going to, you just chew on it to get every last drop of goodness out of it. And for the believer, that should be on our mind all the time, meditating on the word of God. What does it mean? How does it apply? What's, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to change? What, is, what does it mean in context? It should be something that is flowing through us and it should be transforming our thoughts. And that's what the Word of God does. It, it renews our mind because we are thinking literally when we speak, think Scripture, you are thinking God's thoughts. And He is changing your thinking and it's the Holy Spirit convinces you of the truth of the Word of God. That becomes who you are. It changes your character. It changes who you are. It renews your mind.
And so we are called to a comprehensive study and application of the word of God to our lives. It involves thinking about scripture, how, when, where it should be applied. So reading, hearing, studying, memorizing, so that you can accurately think about scripture and apply it. So I know there's one of you out there who is going to say, well, how much do I need to study then? Because some of us like categories, and you want us to say, Pastor, how long? Just give me a time length. Just give me a time length. Well, I'm going to do one better for you. I'm going to ask you a question. How much do you want to grow? How much do you want to grow? Because you grow in proportion to the amount that you meditate and submit to the word of God. So the question should be, how much do you want to grow? And when you answer that question, that answers the first question. How much should I be in the word of God? How much do you want to grow? There's your answer. You will grow into the proportion that you are in the word of God, thinking the word of God, and being obedient to the word of God. Sorry. I know some people would like a 30-minute <laughs> time limit. But for the believer, right, this is day and night. You wake up in the night, think God's thoughts. You've got spare time. I don't want you to go to work and cut your finger off because you're daydreaming. But we, when you've got spare time, everything you do, right? The word of God, the word of God or the word of God. And so he says, this is what happens to the believer. This is, his, this, is the, this is the pleasure of the righteous man. Right? His path, he separates himself from the world. His pleasure, he is saturated with the word of God. And then la- lastly, the righteous man here, we see his prosperity. He is sustained by the Lord. He says this. He shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. So he says the believer is like a tree, a tree that's been planted. Actually, the word literally here means to be transplanted. It means there was a time where this tree wasn't by the streams of living water. There was a time where it was in the desert. There was a time where it might have been a shriveling bush. But it's been planted. In other words, someone planted it there. And we know for every believer, if you're born again, you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He saved you and he placed you here. It was a work of God that poured out his grace and put every believer and plugged him in to the streams of living water. He says, you'll be like a tree firmly planted. In other words, God gave you salvation. He gave you spiritual life and he planted you firmly and you will not be moved. This is a permanent move. You're firmly planted and you will not fall away. And so he, God has taken the unbeliever, the barren plant in the desert, and carefully transplanted it into the rich soil by the streams of water. We were once dead in sin, but God, by his grace, has transplanted us into Christ. He has taken us out of Satan's domain and darkness and placed us into his kingdom of his dear son. And with this new position comes a new provision and resources of life. So we have been transplanted. Again, it's a passive voice here. We didn't plant ourselves. We were planted by God. And so we have been planted by him. And he says, the believer has been planted here, firmly established it will never and never to be moved. Now notice this. He says by the streams of water. Again, a plural word, streams. This word was sometimes used for irrigation ditches that were placed 
to, to do a field, the multiple streams. It was sometimes used of being between various rivers and streams. But he says this, this person has been placed in a spot where he now has this tree has been placed in a place where it now will be irrigated and it will get all the resources that it needs to grow. And so this person has been placed in the oceans of God's grace where God has placed him at a place where he will receive abundant overflowing supply of strength and God's sustaining grace to him. He's been placed in a place where the reservoir will never run dry. There will never be a time where the believer will without the resources of God as he is fed by the word of God and the Holy Spirit gives him the strength. And so you have eternal life, life abundantly. He said, I came that you might have life and you might have life abundantly. Whatever you need, God has in abundance. If you need discipline, he's got it. If you need strength, he's got it. Everything that you need for life and godliness is given to you here because God says, I have planted you in a place where you are here, hear the word of God through the Holy Spirit. You know how the resources of God and everything he says has been given to you. We talked about that in Peter, right? He's given you everything for life and godliness. You need nothing else but the word of God and the Holy Spirit to live obediently to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, you, you have these streams. You will never run out of resources. Drink deep. The well, the springs are deep. You will never run out of God's grace. Now he says... Not only are you like a tree planted by the streams of water, he says, which yields its fruit in its season. What yields its fruit in its season. And he says, this tree that's here is now going to start producing fruit and it will produce fruit in its season. And I think the idea here is simply this. As you go through life, God will continually give you the fruit that you need for the situation that you're in. In other words, as you go through life and you need strength, he gives, it, he gives you the fruit in your life. He doesn't give you the stuff before you need it, but he starts to produce in you the fruit that is necessary for the tasks and the trials and the things that come into your life. And he says, in though every season... In other words, you're, you're going to be giving fruit all of the time. But whatever point that you need in your life, he will yield the fruit in your life when you need it. Godliness, Christ-likeness, the fruit of the Spirit. God grants fruit when you need it. In other words, he's going to be, the believer is going to be being producing fruit, right? We're going to be continually growing in the, in the fruit of the Spirit, that we're going to have those action, those attitude fruits. We're going to be growing in action fruit as we go forth. And God, will, everywhere we go, will be continually granting us the fruit in the season when we need it. And he says, and its leaves will not wither. This isn't one of the trees that, that where, where, you know, it withers and because of drought or, or it loses its leaves because of the time of year. This is like an evergreen tree, except one that gives fruit. But he says this, this tree here is vi it has vitality. It's a healthy plant. It's planted by the streams of water. It will endure. It, it keeps going. The principle of life independently of details of life and one's happiness. In other words, it just keeps going. Life's problems come. Difficulties come. And he says, those who are truly planted in the streams of living water don't wither. They don't fade away. They don't lose their joy. They continue on and living in joy of the Lord because they, they have the power of God in their lives. 
And the believer shouldn't be going around kicking tires and feeling and looking like they are sucking on a sour lemon. Because you, you, you should be like a green tree that, 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 that never withers. You don't go away. I'm not saying we don't feel pain. I'm not saying we don't feel heartache. I'm not saying that things aren't difficult. But what I'm saying is there's a joy of the Lord that comes from within. And we should be vibrant in our spiritual life. We're unaffected, as it were. In our core, we are unaffected by the things that happen around us. We are consistent. The curveballs of life are unable to knock us off course. He says, you don't wither. Circumstances don't cause you to die because you are in him. And then he says, in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, the idea here is not, not that God says that you got, you all, if you're a believer and you're righteous, you're going to have the Midas touch. He's not talking here of material things. He's talking about spiritual, spiritually. In everything that you do in obedience to him, he will prosper you spiritually. This isn't a blank check to get whatever we want. But it is a promise that he will give us soul satisfaction, that everything that we do that is in obedience to him will bring spiritual gain. Doesn't mean we don't have failures. It doesn't mean that we will have success in all of our business things. But there will be primarily a spiritual benefit in our lives. We will gain the capacity to be wise, stable in areas. We will be able to stand. We will be joyful. So we will have spiritual growth and the capacity for life as we go forward. And so he says, this is, this is, this is, this is what happens to the believer when he rejects the world He separates himself. His path doesn't go there. He pleasures in the word of God. He prospers spiritually. This is how his soul is blessed. Because he's prospered. Because he is in the word of God that connects us to God. Tells us who he is. And he works through us. And he prospers us spiritually. It is a place where we are firmly planted. Our salvation is secure. Where we receive the the graces of God anew every day that allows us to produce spiritual fruit that we don't get run over when trouble comes and we continue to grow spiritually. He says, this is what a believer looks like. This is what the righteous man looks like. And so he says, "Who, who is this? The question then becomes, is this who you are? Is this who you are? Are you those who have so delighted in the Lord, who have kept yourself from the world, who have been so empowered by him that you are divinely able to fulfill the purpose that God has placed for you on this on this earth? Do you have the peace? Do you have that contentment? And so the question is, have you separated yourself from the world? Do you pleasure in the word of God? Do you delight in it? And are you described by this prosperity that he says here? That's what a believer is. That's what a believer is. Now, this is true of all believers, not some. True of all believers, not some. This isn't, he's not putting out this group of super saints. 
right? There's two groups here. There's not the hot, the cold, and the unsaved. Either you're in or you're out. This is indicative of all saints. So the question is, is that who you are? Well, now he says in verse 4, he turns to the cursed man, the cursed man. And really, as we look at this, we, we will see his, the futility and the fatality of his way. He says this, the wicked are not so. Now, there's a couple ways of making negation, and this is the strongest one. Absolutely not impossible for him. He's not like that at all. He's not like the believer in any way. He doesn't flourish He's not planted by the streams of living water. He doesn't love the word of God. And he doesn't separate himself from the world. That's not who he is. He says, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. They're not like the righteous at all in character or the constitution of their lives. Again, this points us back to the wicked of verse 1. Those who are unrighteous, those who are unsaved, those who are loose and unstable from God, those who have no morals anchored in the character of God, those who are restless and quieted condition. And he says, the wicked, they're not so, they're not like the believer who's anchored deep in the, in who has been planted deep by the rivers of living water. But they are like chaff with the wind drives away. We could really say the futility of their life. They've lived a whole life on earth, but they have not seen the value of God's word. They have not seen, they have not been plugged in and planted to the living streams of water. And what they produce with all of their religion and all of their living is as valuable as chaff. When you, when you do wheat, what they used to do is they used to take wheat and they would go onto the top of a hill. They would usually put a big rock or slab on the top and they would take the wheat and they would get it either beat down with animals or, or whatever they could do to shell it. And what would be left on, on that top there would be, would be chaff, the out, outside coating of the grain and the grain seed. And they would be on the top of the hill because of the greatest amount of wind. And then they would take it and they would throw it in the air. And the wind would take the chaff and blow it away. It was of no value at all. It has no nutritional value. You can't eat it. You can't do anything with it. It's only fit to be burned. And he says, the wicked, because they have listened to the world, because they have gone down that spiral of sin and become those who, in, with their thinking and with their actions and with their scoffing, have stood against God. And, and all their effort and all their life has amounted to zero value in God's eyes. Nothing of spiritual value has been done at all. They have lived lives that are futile. They are of no value. They are utterly worse, ultimately worthless to God and generally worthless to society since they corrupt and feed others. Primarily, they are unstable, blown about by the pillar to post because they have no spiritual roots in the word of God. And so here are these unbelievers who have lived a life instead of being understanding the necessity to turn from the ways of the world and the world system, instead of recognizing the need to be in the word of God and to meditate on it and to have God's thoughts and to be empowered by God and planted in and, and flourishing by him, they've turned out just to be worthless chaff. And so those who are independent of God go about by false counsel of the world, by satanic and human viewpoint, by the lust patterns of their own cart, by the pressures and problems of this life for which they have no answer. 
And he says, because they have done this, because they have done this, ultimately they are only fit for judgment. They are only fit for judgment. He says, therefore the wicked will not stand in, in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Therefore, in light, of, in light of who they are, in light of the lives they've lived, in, in light of the fruitful, fruitlessness of their lives, in the fact that they have rejected everything that God has said is good and right, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, there's going to come a time where those, the wicked will stand before God and give an account at the great white throne, judgment, and revelation. And they will come and they will stand before him. And the idea here isn't that they're getting out of judgment. It's not that they won't stand in judgment. The fact is that they will not stand in approval. They will not get an acquittal at this point. God isn't going to say, oh, well, you tried hard. You were sincere. At this point, there is no acquittal. They will not get an acquittal. They will not get, get the smile of God upon them. And because they are being judged, it says, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. In other words, because they are unbelievers, because they are under the judgment of God, they will not be with the righteous. They will be cast into hell and they will go to eternal torment. They will not be able to stand with those who have been approved by God, with the saints of God. Again, Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne on him who sat upon it, whose presence of the earth and heaven had fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged from these things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And again, it's according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is separation here. Believers to heaven, unbelievers to hell. He says, for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. There's an intimacy here. He knows, it's not simply knowledge. This is the same word that when we talk about Adam knew his wife. There's an intimate relationship here. The Lord watches over he is protective. He knows their way because he has set their way. He is the one who has saved them from eternity past. And he knows their life. He knows their pathway because he's ordained it. And he says, God knows their motives. He knows what it produces. He knows their ends. He knows everything about them. He's familiar with them. For all, for all, for those whom he what? Foreknew. He knew them intimately in eternity past. These are the ones he knows their way because he has ordained their way. And they have been those who have rejected the world, delighted in the word, and been going to the streams of living water. But he says, but the way of the wicked will perish. But the way of the wicked will perish. In other words, there's a relationship with God. There are those who what, are known by God, and that's the most important thing. It's not if you know God, it's whether he knows you. And then the, there are those who will ultimately what, perish in hell. Right? This is complete annihilation, not complete annihilation in the fact that they are it, it cease to exist, but complete destruction as they are thrown into the lake of fire that will burn with fire and brimstone forever. 
They will be judged as we saw this morning in Revelation 14. In the presence of God and his angels for all eternity. God will actively be punishing these people for the rejection of him and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, we've seen two, two types of people. There are those who are blessed, who have a spiritual satisfaction in the Lord because they have rejected the influence of the world. They have been under the influence of the word of God and they have plugged into the living God and had resources who he has abundantly given them resources to live pleasing to him. We've seen another group, a group that does not, that is influenced by the world and the world system, who's rejected the word of God, who don't like the word of God, who are not flourishing, but those who are withering, those who are dying. And again, the question becomes, which one are you? Which one are you? Are you marked by being separated from the world? Or is that where you get your influences? Are you marked by placing yourself under the word of God? Do you delight in the word of God? Or could you just shut that thing up and leave it for weeks at a time? Right? Do you spend time in it? The only way you're going to grow spiritually is by, by being in the word of God and meditating on the word of God. Now, for some of us, we haven't been doing that. And we might be frustrated by the fact that we're actually not growing, that we're not being victorious, and that we're not having that satisfaction of the soul. And maybe for some of us here this morning, that we need to actually get to spend time here. We need to spend time in the Word. Not just to know the Bible, but to know the God of the Bible. But it is also possible the reason that you don't reject the things of the world and the reason you don't delight in the word of God and the reason that you are not prospering, the reason that you are not growing spiritually and having victory is the fact that you're the wicked man, that you're an unbeliever. And so this morning... The call is to say, who am I? Who am I? Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to pay the price for sin. He lived a perfect life. He was fully God, fully man. He faced God's wrath. He suffered eternally for three hours. He died, was buried, rose again, and he's coming back. So we are called this morning to decide who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And that decision will ultimately decide whether you are righteous you are wicked now you can't save yourself but you can cry to God that he will save you that he will open your eyes and regenerate you but as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ it is it is up to me to call you to repent and come don't be the wicked person see their end their life is futile and it is fatal But in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's life, there's joy, and there is contentment. Come today, call upon him while he may be found. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, 
I pray that at this moment that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts and that you would be revealing to us who we are before you, whether we are sons and daughters of God or whether we are an unbeliever. And I pray this morning, if you reveal to us that we are a believer, that you would help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do, and that we would be those who would be in your word and that those who are drawing our resources from you. And if we're an unbeliever here this morning, I pray that you would grant us repentance, a repentance that we can't manufacture, a faith that that needs to be given. And so we pray this morning that you would move in hearts, that anyone here under the sound of my voice who does not know you, that your spirit would work in them, regenerate them, and that they would cry out to you that they might know you and that they might flourish and be content in you. We pray this in your name and for your glory, I pray. Amen.